It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. What do rights for women and girls look like around the world? Is reproductive justice happening in Africa, the Middle East, and America? Lena Wen leads Planned Parenthood. In the U.S., she says the situation is dire, particularly with abortion being banned, outlawed, or criminalized in some states. When others have made our health and rights a political game, when they are attacking it not because of medicine or science, but because it's about power and control, then it's our obligation to fight back with everything that we have. Wen is a physician. She joins other doctors for a conversation about the battle for reproductive rights. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. In 1973, abortion became legal in the United States with the landmark Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. Now, new cases may overturn or erode legal abortion, says Wynne, if they reach the Supreme Court. For some, it's already a post-Roe reality with one abortion provider in six states, she adds. What's the situation like for women outside the U.S.? Anya Spinawahu talks about rights in Rwanda, where she served as the executive secretary of the country's National AIDS Control Commission. Shadia Elshaway works on issues around sexual and reproductive health in the Middle East and North Africa. They join Lena Wynn and Pat Mitchell on stage. Mitchell co-founded TED Women. Their conversation was held June 22, 2019. Here's Mitchell. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the front lines of a war. Of a war over who controls women's bodies. Herself, her church, her community, her government. This is a war that's been going on for centuries. And suddenly we are once again on the front lines. Actually, one of the characteristics of this war is that from time to time, we feel like we've negotiated a peace, a truce, and reproductive rights are secured in certain parts of the world, and reproductive justice, a right for every single woman in the world. But at this point, reproductive justice exists for very few women, and rights are under threat everywhere. This morning, we're going to look at the front lines of this war from many different perspectives with women who have spent their lives and who are deeply and passionately committed to ensuring that the decisions about when and if to have children, when and if to get married, how to prioritize our own personal health, all of the outcomes of these decisions we know produce better results for families, communities, countries. Please join me in welcoming today's panelists. These accomplished doctors' full bios are, in, are online, and I do recommend that you read them because what they have been doing and what they continue to do are the kind of credentials that will give us all hope that while we are at this flashpoint in the war again, particularly it feels that way in the U.S., sometimes I feel like I'm watching The Handmaiden's Tale play out uh, in real life, I am comforted by knowing that these three women are where they are, fighting to secure reproductive justice. Agnes, you have said about global health, it begins where I plant my two feet. Yes. What do you mean by that? 
that means that um, there is no part of health that is not part of global health. And uh, that means also that the biggest problem we face at different levels of socioeconomic development, at this different um, level of access to education and sophisticated care, the problem are the same. And the one we are going to talk today is one of, really, we are sharing commonly. In some part of the world, you are just rolling back, like here. In other part of the world, there were no advancement the last thousand years. And in other part of the world, like in my country, we try to cope and to advance. So, but the problem is the same. The right to reproductive health, the right for women to have a professional life, a community life, a family life, at the measure of her will. It's the same everywhere. And I want to return to what lessons you have learned in Rwanda, which has made it widely regarded as one of the safest places for a woman or a girl to grow up with access to health. So what we did in Rwanda, I have learned something. If uh, people were so afraid to not have children when they are at elderly age for multiple reasons, diseases, accidents, war, any type of violence, that they produce children. I had only two. I, I have two children, girls, they are ladies now. Uh, but when I came back in Rwanda, everybody was pushing me to have other children. And they said, are you crazy? I had eight and remain only two. You will die alone. So that means what I learned, if you want a woman to exercise a right to the size of the family she wants, provide her with peace, security, access to health, and keep the children she decides to have alive. And that was my mission. And as Minister of Health, you put policies into place that secured that and will return to what the University of Global Health Equity is doing to ensure it as well. So, Chadia, you join us from work on the front lines in a region of the world where we often are less informed. What are the battlegrounds for Arab women in this reproductive justice war? Well, that's a very interesting question, and I'm very happy that I'm addressing uh, this audience in this early morning with a very hot topic <laughs> about uh, sexual and reproductive uh, health and rights. And uh, to be honest, in the Arab regions, there are many factors that shape the ability of women to have agency over their bodies and to have access to uh, family planning or reproductive healthy choices. And uh, these factors have been uh, long-term since um, decades now, uh, and basically it's related to the socioeconomic status of women, but this has exacerbated by the current political instability in the region. And so now we have different conflicts in the region. One is acute, in acute phases, other in protracted crisis, and also the disparities in the different economical uh, levels in diff in between countries and across countries. But the most common factor that has not been changed for decades now is the control of uh, cultural and religious misconceptions regarding women's rights. Mm -hmm and regarding women's ability to control their bodies. 
And these cultural norms actually affect the decisions of healthcare workers to provide care for women, which, what, what type of care and to whom. So I would say that the most uh, important or restricting uh, factors that um, prevent women from addressing their needs or accessing their needs is the behaviors and the attitudes of healthcare workers. And um, I can give you an example uh, of that. Yeah, between two countries. One of them is my country, Egypt, where uh, there is this healthcare worker. She's a gynecologist working in a very well-equipped clinic, and she had good training uh, with IPPF, where I uh, belong. Mm -hmm. And uh, she has this value clarification and attitude transformation uh, training. So she is very well-equipped to provide the service for a woman in need. And this woman came uh, from a rural area to the clinic and asks for a service. She wants to have an implant. And the doctor didn't approve her request because she didn't have 50 Egyptian pounds to complete the fees of the, um, the service. Uh, although we have a fees exemption policy in the organization. Uh, on the other hand, so this woman was prevented based on the decision from the doctor mm -hmm. to access her right to have a contraception. On the other hand, in one of the conflict zones, but I wouldn't name the country now for security reason for the healthcare providers. There is this healthcare worker, she is a social worker, who is a very genuine activist, and she travels every day to the mountains carrying contraceptives, smuggling contraceptives along her body, rubbing it, covering it with her clothes, not to be uh, caught in the checkpoints, and travel all over the mountains in order to reach women in need for reproductive uh, services. And it was very, for me, it was mind-blowing. Like When I was hiking the other day, the mountains here, I was thinking about this woman, how come she was bearing all this um, <coughs> physical activity, how come she's bearing all this insecurities if she's getting caught by any of the police officers who are searching for women who are, for example, supporting reproductive health. And she just bear all these difficulties in order to uh, enable women to uh, have a choice over her body. And when I asked her, why are you doing this? And she said, because this is my job. I'm here to help other women to have access to their uh, choices mm -hmm. and to be able to choose uh, the future of their life. Right. Thank you for those very specific examples <coughs> of, <coughs> of how women are taking these extraordinary personal risks to go against government, church, religion, community, um, to secure that other women have access to, to their health needs. Uh, Lena, you took over Planned Parenthood at a very interesting time. It's uh, a good word. <laughs> May you live in interesting times was a comment, right? Um, and when it feels that reproductive justice is under the greatest threat ever, and you have moved to those front lines very quickly, and I know that you can share with us some of the consequences you're seeing mm -hmm. for the legislations that are being passed. I mean, the battleground is now everywhere. But I'd like you to start with one of the comments that you made recently, which gives me an insight into the way you're approaching this work. Which is you say, people say to you, Planned Parenthood is about this. Stay in your lane. And you say it's about everything. Hmm. Say more. 
well, I come to this work along with my colleagues as a physician. And everything that I do is centered on my patient, on the person who comes to me. And when I look at the patients who come to us in Planned Parenthood and their stories, nobody is one thing. Right? Nobody, it's not like somebody comes in for birth control and that's what's written on their head, birth control. That person who's coming in requesting birth control may also be a victim of intimate partner violence, may also not have, may be, uh, may be facing food insecurity, may not have a place to live, may not have health insurance, may not have gotten treatment for depression and anxiety and diabetes and all these other things too. And it's not just our job, but I would argue our obligation as providers to meet people where they are and to take care of the whole person. And that, in fact, is what Planned Parenthood does every day. I mean, when we look at the stories of patients who come through, mm -hmm. the stories all sound like this. I came in for A. Mm -hmm. In addition to A, I got B, C, D, E, F, G. And that, to me, is just good health care. One in three women in America have come to Planned Parenthood for their care. We also are proud to serve millions of not only women, but men and non-binary people and all people. And that's the type of care that we're proud of. And I think that's what we need people to understand about the work that we do. We, yes, we are very proud to provide sexual reproductive health care, which is health care. We're very proud to provide cancer screenings and STI tests and birth control and, yes, safe, legal abortion care because that is health care. We also provide so many other services because that's just good care and that's what we do. And I think that's, you know, I am... Um, come to this work, and I see the patients who come through our doors, they're not trying to make a political statement. Just like the woman you described, I don't know that she's trying to make a political statement by trying to go to through all these checkpoints with the contraceptives strapped on her body, or you know, people who are just trying to make ends meet and have their family survive. They're not making a political statement. But somehow, when others have made our health and rights a political game, when they are attacking it not because of medicine or science, but because it's about power and control over women's bodies, mm -hmm. then it's our obligation to fight back with everything that we have. And you are doing that in many, many places. And you referenced uh, before we began this morning that there's an interesting, not interesting, there's a very threatening battle evolving and the state of Missouri is it right now. Let, let's look at that for what it means to the threats everywhere or what feels like threats everywhere. Well, we often talk about the threat to Roe. And the threat to Roe is very real. I mean, there are right now 14 cases that are one step away from the Supreme Court. And if any of them are heard, Roe could very well be overturned or further eroded. And if Roe is overturned, then 25 million women which is one in three women of reproductive age in this country would be living in states where abortion is banned and outlawed and criminalized. I mean, that's a very real threat. But then using the reproductive justice framework that, that you mentioned, um, we have to keep in mind that for so many people across the country, we are already in a post-Roe reality. I mean, there are six states now with only one abortion provider left. And by the end of today, Missouri may be the first state mm -hmm. in the country to not have any health center that provides abortion care. 
and be the first, it will be the first time this has happened since 1974. And when I think about what our patients have to go through, so I'll give you the, the example in Missouri. I, I went to medical school there, so this feels very personal to me too, that you know, um, there's already only one health center that provides abortion care there. And Missouri has imposed over the years regulation after regulation that, again, has no medicine, no basis in medicine or science, you know, laws that require hallways to be, a certain, to be a certain width. I mean, just things that don't make actual sense. Admitting privileges in hospitals that are not required of any other medical procedure. And the most recent egregious thing they did is to require two separate pelvic exams, 72 hours apart. So just imagine this, that you're a patient who wants to get abortion care. You have to drive in often three hours to go see your provider. Then you have to come in 72 hours later and get child care and time off from work and all these, and the expense again. Both times you have a pelvic exam? I mean, what, what sense does that make? And by the way, Missouri also requires that it's the same physician who sees you during both of these visits. So what happens if that physician is off that day and now you have to come back the following week to start this process all over, and by then you might be past the gestational limit. I mean, I think we need to be, we need to center the woman, the patient in all of this, and think about the struggles they go through and how abortion care and reproductive health care is just siloed and stigmatized and treated as something other than what it is, which is standard health care. And changing the narrative, finding the right language to talk about this is so key, and, and I look forward to the input of each of you on that subject. But on the specific subject of the right to choose abortion care, um, for many of us in this room, this feels deeply personal, and that we can be at the brink of moving back to what were the dark ages for so many of us. Um, it's just hard to fathom. And to recognize that it's still a, a horrific reality of the ways in which are the options that are available to women seeking abortion care. Uh, Anya, as I was reading about how many women in Rwanda are seeking abortion care and die in the process because of untrained professionals over the difficulty um, of seeking and getting abortion care, it, talk about that landscape and where your current work with the University of Global Health Equity is interfacing with that work. <clears throat> so in Rwanda, it, it was totally like that a few years ago. Up to the time, we managed to negotiate with the churches. Don't forget that the churches own 30% of the health sector. They are working very closely with the public sector, mm -hmm. providing the same care, recognizing the health insurance. The only thing that some religion facility, based facilities doesn't do is to provide family planning. Some of them, not all. And for the, the space where we are, we were in peace and reconciliation, we needed those churches to, to, to strengthen the peace and reconciliation process after the genocide and provide the care. So near the health facilities belonging to the church, we had a health post providing family planning, and we negotiated a ceasefire. Don't tell your people it's bad. Tell them where they can receive. Second 
step was to provide family planning tools to each community health worker. There are three in each village. They can provide pills, injections, and condom. Because we saw that uh, women, the day to go and get the injection, there was a child sick or something, the road, or mm. etc. Having that in the village has helped a lot. Now for abortion, of course the churches were against. And uh, the person who negotiates, it's not me, because I was not so well framed, the president negotiate with the church at least four big avenues for authorization of abortion. Among them, mental health uh, wellness. This is everything. Hmm? Mm -hmm. However, time to realize that you have your first months of pregnancy, to find a doctor that can do that, to be on the list. Many of the women have passed the time. So that's where we are now. We are negotiating and we are studying. Our students are searching how to do better communication to the woman for the sign of pregnancy, the first man, months, how to use the, the, the woman community health workers who is there for the woman to drag them, etc., and to fight social stigma because the social stigma is the next. It's hard, we, we couldn't even overestimate the power of this right of women to choose when and if to have children um, has become this ideological football uh, that is deepening the divide. And, and, I, and I have to say something. Recently, there was a lot of young women pregnant in jail for tentative mm -hmm. of abortion. Mm -hmm. The president gave them grass to all of them. Mm -hmm. yeah when it was became, thanks to the press, it came out, and he said, we are missing up the point. Hmm? Yeah. Free them today. Hmm? But it doesn't solve the, the access to service yet. Hmm. We, we need to do something else. Hmm? But you have found a way to talk about it yeah. in this country, and what, there are lessons we can learn from the way you have shaped the narrative. We want to come back to those. Sharia, what, 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 how do you approach bridging these ideological differences and the barriers that are clearly put up to women accessing the health care they need? Well, speaking about abortion, actually it's one of the most taboo topics that we can uh, navigate in the Arab mm -hmm. region, especially because of the religious uh, implications related to uh, um, discussing uh, abortion. However, one of the most successful experiences in the region was Tunisia in the late 60s, where there were a political will by the president, where they, have, they are the only country in the region where they have abortion on demand. Other countries, are, um, they have different um, uh, barriers, and actually it's, it's, not, uh, it's not legal in uh, all the countries in the Arab region. And um, I think uh, the main reasons uh, behind that is not um, related only to the political world, but also to the religious uh, misinterpretations and um, uh, the, 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 um, 
I'm, I'm losing my uh, English now. <laughs> uh, the, um, the space given for women to express uh, themselves and express the need and to have access to healthcare, even post-abortion care and treatment of incomplete abortion, still a problem. And it's still an ethical dilemma for the healthcare providers. Because, for example, if we, for issues that has uh, legal grounds, for example, FGM is criminalized in Egypt, but at the same time it's medicalized because people still believe that FGM is important for the honor of the girl. And if someone reported a doctor uh, that he is practicing uh, this harmful practice over girls, uh, the community protects the doctor and they testify that he does not do that. So uh, there are many factors that uh, affect uh, women's uh, uh, access um, to health care, especially in um, these uh, taboo areas, uh, either abortion or the harmful uh, practices. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Now that the Aspen Ideas Festival is a wrap, we're excited to deliver to your earbuds a variety of new conversations. From health and human rights to equity and the arts, your favorite speakers will educate and entertain you. Subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go or stream episodes on your podcast player. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Pat Mitchell. What is so scary, it seems to me, Lena, about where we are now in the United States is you had a kind of leadership at the top that began to change the narrative and the access. We seem to have quite the opposite (laughs) (laughs) at the moment. Uh, It it seems to be the leadership is further polarizing uh, the issue. And how have you and Planned Parenthood addressed these current threats from that perspective of how do we talk about this? How do we find the language that bridges the differences? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point, and I'm not trying to make this a political conversation. I'm just here to say facts. But here is a fact that the president of this country is lying about reproductive health care. I mean, it's just true. Um, You know, I was at the State of the Union back in February as Nancy Pelosi's guest, watching the president say these awful and untrue things, I mean, deliberately misleading the American people to confuse infanticide, which nobody supports and is illegal, with abortion later in pregnancy. And, you know, it's just, it's really hard when the president of the country is using the loudest megaphone in order to spread misinformation to hide to give cover to actually what's happening, which is this real crisis of state politicians passing the most extreme laws we've ever seen. I mean, when we talk about what's happening and criminalizing, there is a really dangerous trend in this country going on now of criminalizing doctors. And what is the consequence of that? Is that doctors are going to be scared to take care of patients and Mm -hmm. people are not going to have access. I mean, Alabama, the law that passed that bans abortion at any time in pregnancy that has no exceptions for rape or incest that puts doctors in jail for up to 99 years, longer sentence than the rapist might receive. I mean, Georgia, Georgia. Missouri also passed laws to criminalize doctors and 
By definition, a law that criminalizes doctors would also allow the state, like the state, the government, to investigate women for having miscarriages. Because otherwise, yeah. how are they going to find that doctor? And so how are we punishing women in many ways, cutting off access, but also stigmatizing women for medical issues? And so I think, I mean, you know, it's a really challenging time to be in. And I have to say, I mean, it's been hard for us while we're trying to raise awareness of here are these awful laws that are happening, then the president sends out a tweet and speaks at a rally. Two days ago, he spoke at a rally and repeated these lies. And I just have to say, these lies about abortion later in pregnancy, every time I hear them, it's, it just, it's so visceral to me to hear them. Um, first of all, because they're not true, and it's important for us to call out that. It's important for us to talk about the truth when it comes to abortion later in pregnancy, too, that it is rare that... About 1% of abortions, or actually, I should say the, the other way, 99% of abortions, according to the CDC, occur before 21 weeks. Mm-hmm. And so those that occur later in pregnancy, after 24 weeks, are exceedingly rare. And I've treated women who've been in these very challenging circumstances, who may have found out, you know, I remember this one woman who found out at 21 weeks that she was carrying twins, that if she had carried them to term, would have suffocated upon birth because they would never develop their lungs and were missing their diaphragms. Another woman I met found out that she, had, um, she was carrying a, a baby that if she had given birth would never have the bones be fused and had such severe cardiac malformations that probably would require multiple surgeries and not survive beyond a few weeks. I mean, these families are, these are people who've, bought a crib and assembled a nursery, folded little clothes, put them into drawers, and had a baby shower. And then they found out this kind of news. And there are other women who, for a number of reasons, just could not access care because they had to drive, you know, many, many miles and couldn't afford care. And instead of having compassion for families, the president is shaming them and stigmatizing them. And I think that's why the work that we do now is so important, because it's up to us to speak the truth about what's really happening. And thank you, uh, Lena, for speaking the truth so clearly and boldly. And and, and it, it is terrifying to see the reality and the consequences that you and so many others in this room are seeing and experiencing. What are we missing, though? You know, what can we learn from the dialogue you've created in Rwanda that can change this complete extremist uh, positions on this this issue and and many others related to it? I think that's why I'm so proud to lead the University of Global Health. Equity is the equity approach to problems. Hmm? Uh, If the society have an equal, equitable way to treat women and men, those type of things should, will not happen. Second, having a constitution or laws that allow people to lie at the expense of the life of people without any accountability, I don't know that. I don't understand. We don't either. (laughs) 
you have my compassion. <laughs> because everything comes from there. And when you have an agenda based on equity, the power game, I don't say that it doesn't exist. Be careful. We are still a patriarchal country where we try to progress. Mm -hmm. Hmm? But at least you have a voice to say, this is not good, etc. At least you can say, mm, this seems bizarre. Which student want to do her last work with me on this subject? Huh? Based on equity. An equity agenda and an accountability system. And you are training physicians and physicians to be who come nurses, through. Nurses, doctors, uh, program to managers, policy, uh, uh, policy makers to have this approach because mm -hmm. it's an exercise that we need to entertain day after day. Yeah. Because, and also, never forget, <laughs> you are at that level, even you can be at the roof, at the level of development, nothing is sure. It's a battle of every day to stay there. Without question. I'm trying to move us to this terrified place of feeling all, that, that this war has escalated to a point that, by the way, is sort of hard to explain to the generations of young people, yeah. particularly in America, the U.S., who have never known these dark ages, yeah. who grew up with birth control and access to to help. But Shadia, when we saw the Arab Spring erupt and we saw the young people in that region of the world taking charge and demanding their rights, did it extend to women's health and reproductive justice? And are they an ally now in changing the circumstances for Arab women? I'm very happy that you asked this question because I think what is projected to the media about the Arab Spring is a failure of the Arab Spring. Uh, and at some point, uh, there are areas where we, women, especially women, uh, made the front lines uh, during the revolution. I, myself, I am a proud daughter of Tahrir Square, and I've seen uh, many women, especially uh, doctors in the, during the, the, the conflict uh, at Tahrir Square, doing their best to uh, provide the services for people and spread awareness about the role of women in controlling uh, or in being a part of the public sphere. And actually, we have been, uh, it was very funny because uh, during uh, the revolution, especially the first 18 days, and we started as women to raise the issue of uh, gender equality and uh, women participation and empowerment, and our uh, male comrades were saying, this is not the right time. Mm -hmm. And we were like, no, it's always the right time to talk about our rights. <laughs> there is no perfect moment. It's always a perfect moment for us to talk about our rights. And uh, days later, uh, some of our uh, um, male colleagues were um, in the revolution. They came and said that, we kept going in the front lines because women were going in the front lines and we felt ashamed of ourselves that we are not uh, going further uh, to fight the uh, pro-regime. And uh, I think what happened at this moment is that uh, it unleashed the power of Egyptian women to claim the rights and to have their voices heard and to speak up at any event. And uh, what happened later is that... Uh, cases of sexual harassment because there were many cases of sexual assaults uh, during uh, the revolution and still our male comrades were saying this is not the right time to address mm -hmm. sexual harassment we have to keep the revolution clean mm -hmm. and we're like no we have to talk about sexual harassment because it's an epidemic in Egypt and I think anyone visited Egypt I'm sorry to say that have experienced and I see some heads are nodding for that <laughs> experience sexual harassment. 
So what I'm trying to say here is the uh, moment of the revolution was very empowering for women. Uh, well, the, the level of uh, achievements or the impact of the good impact of the revolution on women's rights had different from country to another. For example, in Tunisia, uh, the constitution of the 2014 have granted women the right uh, to uh, marry non-Muslim, which is a revolutionary in the Arab world and Muslim countries. Uh, in Egypt, still, we are trying... There is few progress, it's not that uh, big, but still we are trying to do more and to uh, rely on the movement of the grassroots uh, uh, organizations. But the Arab Spring was a very historical and momental uh, woman for the, uh, all the Arab countries that are facing them. And I take this chance to salute all the Arab women in Sudan now uh, who are trying to get the rights and um, I send them all uh, our uh, support from here. We need a... <laughs> We, we need a U.S. spring, right, uh, Lena? Um, I, I'm shocked that the you know young people aren't in the streets over this issue, and and I know you are out rallying support, trying to find the right way to tell this story. What can we as a caring community do? Oh, I appreciate that, but I actually think that the revolution in the U.S. is coming, and I actually even think that it's here. So there was just a, um, a Marist poll, an NPS and, and PBS NewsHour poll done two weeks ago that found that support for Roe versus Wade in this country is at the highest level that it's ever been at 77%. We are seeing all kinds of people stand with us that did not before. Last week, um, there were nearly 200 executives who took out a full-page ad in the New York Times yes. talking about equality and abortion care and reproductive health care as part of that equality. I mean, we are seeing people rise up in ways that we have not before because of how extreme these attacks are. And actually because of this, that maybe people didn't know that the threat to Roe was real, which, by the way, we've been saying is real. 2016, we said the, president, the person who was running for president has said that he wants to criminalize women and doctors. Can we just, you know, can we take a moment here and, and recognize that that's what he said? Or that he would only appoint judges who are anti-women's health care, and now one in ten federal judges are Trump appointees. 2018, Brett Kavanaugh, we said this is what's going to happen under Kavanaugh, and look what's happened now. The spate of legislation that we're seeing is because of these forces emboldened by Trump and Kavanaugh. So this has actually happened. We were not crying wolf. But now people know that. And I think amidst all these bad things that are happening, we also should look at what's good, what's good that's happening, the changing public momentum. Also, the fact that this year, states have passed the most number of proactive legislation to protect reproductive rights in recent history, that a quarter, nearly a quarter of all the proactive legislation passed since 2011 were passed in 2019. And why is that? It's because in 2018, women and people who support reproductive rights rose up. We voted for the most diverse, most female House of Representatives. That's the most pro-choice House of Representatives ever in our history. And we, as the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, are going to be harnessing that momentum, mobilizing our voters, our supporters, our, and educating people all across the country throughout 2020, because we know that, this, that the American people stand with us. People want 
everyone to have more health care, not less. We want our children to have more rights than we do, not fewer. And with all of your help, and you can text no bans to 22422 as a plug, no bans to 22422, <laughs> but with your help, we are going to make the wave of 2018 look like nothing more than a ripple, and we're going to take back state legislatures, governor's houses, and the White House. <laughs> Boy, I, I'm feeling better every minute, Lena. Uh, knowing, knowing that you're out there with this message, uh, can we? Maybe you ought to run for president. How about how about Lena Wen for president? No, we need you where you are. Actually, exactly where you are. What we have little time to do, but just to come back to it, is that this isn't just a U.S. woman's issue. Obviously, it's every woman's issue. And the battles that each of you are leading is to ensure that we will have a world eventually where women do have control over their bodies. And the intersectionality of that with every other part of a woman's life is often what gets lost as we enter into the discussion about the battleground. So, uh, Agnes, you're about to convene a conference of global health professionals. Uh, what, what are you hoping will be the outcome as we look at this wide plethora of challenges for women all over the world? How do we bring them together and create a global sisterhood, as, as it were? That's, that's exactly the word. Uh, so... Our university, the University of Global Health Equity, is convening 9th and 10 November a global conference, Women Leaders in Global Health. First one was in Stanford, second in, US, in this country, second was in London School in, uh, of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, and the third is in our university. So we have women coming from Europe, U.S., uh, Asia, you are coming, <laughs> coming, okay, <laughs> and uh, coming, uh, and we want to discuss gender equity in the sphere of global health, and it's everything. If you take the social determinant <clears throat> of health, everything is concerned: the law, education, health per se, but also the double burden to be a woman and an handicapped woman, the double burden to be a woman, of, no, not a double woman, but to be a woman and inequity in academic. Women are progressing less. Uh, women have a, a less access to research. Even NIH, with the great statement Phil Collins have done, no, not Phil Collins, this is the, uh, Francis <laughs> Collins, have given a few days ago that he will stop forever now to, to sit in a panel with men only. Mm -hmm. But NIH, Grandi, look how many women get it and how many men get it. Mm. Same in, uh, and this is cultural and all over the world, in publication. When the woman is first author, when a man is, the, it's different. When you look at those statistics, enough is enough. Mm. So come all in Kigali this year <laughs> to discuss all this. And, uh, and many other topics, because we have a topic on reproductive health also. And so it's all the, 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 culture, the, the, the culture that make women to, so always the second. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, whatever culture, I don't know a culture in, world, in the world that is equitable. Mm -hmm. 
There is well, time to change. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Actually, there's none where it's completely equitable, yeah. although there's some where these rights are secured. Shandia, what, what's the one message you want us to take away from this in terms of the, the huge population of Arab women who are fighting now for their reproductive rights? I think the one message is that um, I feel that women are championing their rights now in the Arab region, but uh, at the same time, uh, support is needed in relation to changing the narrative because it seems like in the Arab region no one, no one buys a rights-based approach. So maybe you can change the narrative to more to the economical implications of uh, um, gender inequality and how this will affect the, the population uh, welfare. So this is something that I would like to um, convey to the audience uh, that uh, we need to do this and we need to invest more in uh, approaches like that. And Lena, you have found new ways to talk about this intersectionality, but what, what is the, the one hope you have? What's the lever that we can push that will move us most forward uh, on this battleground? I'd say let's be bold and reclaim the language. When we talk about core American values, dignity, freedom, justice, health, these are the equality, right? These are the values that we hold. We should be saying that pro-choice means that we are pro-woman, pro-child, pro-family, pro-community. We should not let them use the language of pro-life when they are trying to take away health care and we are the ones who are saving lives every single day. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than to uh, leave us all with the hope that maybe with this, what we have learned today, what we will learn over the next few days at this amazing conference will move us forward toward that reality. Thank you all for being with us. Lena Wen is the president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Anya Spinawahu is a pediatrician, vice chancellor, and professor of pediatrics. Previously, she served in the Rwanda government. Shadia Ilshaway is assistant regional director of the International Planned Parenthood Federation in the Arab World Region. Pat Mitchell is a longtime journalist who served as president of CNN Productions. Their conversation was held June 22, 2019. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Institute. The health team is Peggy Clark, Ruth Katz, Katie Drasser, Tracy Anderson, Natalie Johnson, Deb Cunningham, and Jamie Davido. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.